Financial Residency is proud to bring you Grand Rounds with Dr. Tammy. Each week, Tammy Krause explores a new topic related to achieving financial independence by building and protecting your wealth. She invites guests who are experts in their fields who will share honest and valuable advice on a variety of topics. If you have an idea for a podcast, please email Tammy, that's T-A-M-M-Y, at financialresidency.com. Now grab your front row seat to this week's Grand Rounds. Hi, and welcome back to Grand Rounds. We often hear physicians who are burned out and exhausted from working their 12-plus-hour shifts with difficult patients, burdensome EMRs, and less-than-supportive administrators, and many docs are just interested in exploring alternative careers but have no idea where to start. So I invited Dr. Jonathan Vitali, and he is a physician transition career coach who focuses on helping clinical physicians find high-paying remote careers to try and give them back that love of life and love of medicine again. So welcome to the show, Dr. Vitali. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Dr. Krause. And please call me Jonathan. It's <laughs> such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, I came across you on one of your on your Facebook group, Remote Careers. And it looks like maybe you focus mostly on the utilization management, but also encourage other types of remote careers. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Well, I started the Remote Careers Facebook group in 2018. I always joke, I started trying to get physicians into remote careers before being in a remote career was cool. Nowadays, everybody wants to be in a remote career, (laughs) but I was into it way back. So I've been into a lot of things in the past, whether it be telemedicine or utilization management, but I really wanted to start a group to get all physicians together who are interested in these, what I call alternative careers, which typically in our group, well, we discuss anything related to remote careers, but typically that falls into one of three buckets, which would be telemedicine, but also utilization management, and then also the pharma world. Those are probably the biggest three categories. And we have over 13,000 verified physicians in our private group. So it's grown by leaps and bounds. Uh, And it's a great place to network. There's a lot of job postings in that group. It's a great place to talk about anything about your career, as long as you want to transition to a remote career. And it's a really great place for doctors to just dip their toe in and just get started. That's always our most common member. Somebody who's working a traditional clinical job is kind of burnt out or kind of just bored or kind of just wants to see what their other options are. And it's a great place to start for everybody. So I certainly... Um, suggest that everybody join. How did you get started in a remote career? Well, really how I got started, I did kind of the typical route of, you know, college and then got a master's in counseling, but then I went to medical school and then I did residency in family medicine. And then I got, you know, I had a traditional job in family medicine, a clinical job for a few years, both in Chicago and then here in New York City. And After several years, I kind of started to realize that I was interested in so much more. I think it's important to say that I've been interested in the whole world of healthcare since I was in high school, probably even earlier. So this isn't like some one day I woke up and said, I want a remote career. It was always something I was kind of interested in. I was always very interested, even in medical school, about how insurance companies pay for things or how people's hospital length of stay is determined or 
who all those other people were in the hospital who run around and dig through the charts and make sure that the patient is in the right, you know, inpatient versus op status or whatever it is. I was always interested in that. But in my personal story, when kind of the final straw was, I was in a job here in New York City in a clinic. And I just really felt, even though I was only working 40 hours a week at this job, I felt very overworked, very underappreciated, and very underpaid. And then what that made me think about was how really from day one of being pre-med, people are all three of those. They are overworked, they're underappreciated, they're underpaid. And it goes all throughout being a medical student, through being a resident, and then and then even being an attending. A lot of most attendings out there are overworked, underpaid, underappreciated. And I wanted to see if there was something better. And that's how I got involved originally in utilization management, which was remote. And I was thinking, wow, this is awesome to have a remote career, not have to commute to work every day, not have to have all the stress at work. And also me, I have a lot of other things in my life. I'm very into my music as a pianist and vocalist. Um, and I wanted a lot of time to spend on that. And I wanted a lot of time to spend on my personal pursuits of different graduate degrees and things I wanted to do that weren't related. I wanted to get an MBA because I just am interested in business, which I got. I wanted to, I was more interested in business as well. And there was no place to kind of answer your question. There really was no place for docs to talk about all of this. There were some industries and there are in, there are some very good organizations that are for non-clinical physicians or non-traditional physicians, but nobody really focused on remote careers. And so that's why I started the group and I have been remote ever since and I couldn't be happier. Talking about med school and residency, we're obviously very directly trained to do one thing. How do you go about transitioning into plan B? I mean, do you have to go back to school to do that? Do you have to get additional training? So I think that's one of our most common questions in the remote careers group and in my personal coaching. The thing about physicians are when you say you want to be a physician, that means, okay, I got to go, I got to go do all these things. I got to get licensed. I got to get certified, got to get board certified. I got to pass all these tests to have this credential to be able to do to practice medicine. And what I think is the most important thing for docs to realize is that credential in and of itself, that board certification. And then in many fields, not utilization management, because utilization management requires board certification, but some other fields, such as some pharma jobs and other jobs, they don't even require that. Some may only require an MD or a DO degree. In utilization management, you do need to be board certified. And for people who are interested in getting involved in utilization management, most of the training is actually done on the job because a lot of it is very specific training. Then the question is always, well, how do I get the job if I don't have any experience in UM? And the answer is there are gigs, there are part-time 1099 independent contractor gigs that you can get doing utilization management. And I talk about this all the time on podcasts and all the time on social media. And these are ways to get experience doing UM. Now, you're not going to make money doing this. They're going to pay you a very, very, very low amount. They'll pay you like $10, $20, $30 per an hour to do these cases. But what they will get you is it will get you experience that you can put on your CV that will get you an interview. And 
it takes a lot of persistence and a lot of guidance. But within six to 18 months, you can land a job, a full-time job in utilization management with the right support. And that comes from you know, the Facebook groups, private coaches. I'm one of them, but there's also several great coaches out there that help doctors do this to get that experience. And it does not come, and it's not a certification. Yes, there is APCOR certification out there, which is for UM. It's a UM board certification. You do not need that to get a job in UM. Yes, there are MBAs and things like that. Again, you do not need those to get a job in utilization management. I would say this, yes, full disclosure, I do have an MBA, but I only got it one year ago. And since then, I have not changed my job. I just got it for fun. And I think that doctors need to get out of that mindset that they need all these certifications and licensures to do things. You don't. You just need to have your doctor credentials and you need to be good at presenting yourself be really good on the CV and knowing how to kind of put your strengths up there and then also be great at interviewing. And again, these are things that you can get help with very easily. And we talk about the utilization management career. I mean, what does that look like for a physician? What do you do day to day? What does the money look like? What do the hours look like? Sure. And this is also a very common question. And this varies, of course. Uh, what I can So let me talk about kind of general utilization management. It's also called utilization review for people out there who may be wondering. It's also called that. The terms are a little bit different, but they're often used interchangeably. There's a lot of different opportunities. There are docs who just do those side gig opportunities where they're reviewing UM for maybe an independent company that's reviewing a one-off case for a pharmaceutical drug request or for an imaging request. And they're just asking docs to do these as a one-off and they pay them X amount of money and a doc may do one a week or they may do you know more than that just like in their free time. That's one, one field. But when people really want to get into a career transition, they're not usually looking for that. They're looking for the full-time W-2 jobs like what I have. And most of those, not all of them, but most of them actually come down from large insurance companies. These are the big name insurance companies that everybody knows that hire UM docs. They have utilization management departments and they hire UM doctors, they hire UM nurses, they hire UM physical therapists, occupational therapists, they hire basically UM pharmacists, they hire UM dentists. I mean, any clinical role will be hired by these companies. And they'll usually hire you when you get hired, they will hire you to work in one of the divisions. And there's many different divisions in home health. Just think about everything you order every day as a doctor. Everything you order, there's going to be somebody ultimately doing a UM review on that. It may be just a computer at the main level doing an approval of it because computers can do approvals. At some level, if there is a denial, it will be made by a physician, whether you're ordering a study, an imaging study, a medication, or if you're ordering a home health request, if you're ordering you know, a Medicare Advantage home health request or traditional Medicare home health request, or if you're ordering you know, a SNF, transition to SNF from a hospital or an inpatient rehab or to long-term acute care, all of those sorts of requests, durable medical equipment is another one, is going to be reviewed. So in terms of a typical day, let's say you're one of these physicians and you're assigned to one of those, like let's say you're working in the home health division of a company reviewing the home health Medicare Advantage plan requests or traditional Medicare requests. The introductory level is called medical director. 
That's very important in utilization management. A lot of people think, well, that'd be, because if you're a medical director of a clinic, that's a pretty high rank. No, it's not that way in utilization management. That's Mm -hmm. entry level. Entry level is medical director. Sometimes you're called an associate and you have to work up to full medical director, but that's your entry level. And after training, which usually takes a few months, your typical day is basically reviewing cases, which come into the queue. And the queue is basically a fancy way of saying a list of all the cases for you to review. And it depends on the complexity of the case for how long it takes you to review it. But typically before you review these cases, a dozen other people have reviewed it, whether they be nurses, therapists, computer algorithms, which has reviewed it because it has to finally ultimately come up to the physician for his or her final stamp of either approval or denial. It's very important for me to also point this out. There's no financial incentive for approvals versus denials. None. Those don't exist. Those are illegal. That's a rumor. They do not exist in UM in America. You are only making the decision based upon clinical guidelines, evidence-based practices, and your own personal clinical judgment of the patient. You're reviewing everything yourself everything everybody else has reviewed, you're reviewing it yourself and you're making the final determination. Typically, a full-time job is pretty standard, 40 hours a week. Remember, this is the non-clinical business world where every weekend is a golden weekend. Okay. So, you know, where most people are working, you know, nine to five, eight to five, when they're working over that, they're paid overtime and it's usually voluntary. And there's usually no night or weekend commitment. If there is, you're paid overtime and it's usually a voluntary. So usually you're doing mostly cases during the day, you may have meetings, and then you do peer-to-peer calls, which everybody loves. You're doing the peer-to-peer discussions as well. I say everybody loves it kind of in jest because so many people are afraid of doing those, but they're really not that bad. And actually, when you come over to the UM side and you realize you're trying to be an advocate for the physician and the patient, you're really just trying to figure out with the physician what's best for the patient. And sometimes you help them. You say, hey, you know, this isn't covered, but if you considered this or if you considered that, or we could offer this or that. Again, as a UM doctor, you are not practicing medicine. You are not directing care. All you're doing is adjudicating benefits. It's not your patient. It's the ordering physician's patient. Now you can call them up and say, this is what we can cover. This is what's covered by the benefit. This is not covered, but it's ultimately up to that ordering physician to figure out what they want to do. In terms of, I think you asked about pay and everything like that, you can be either, here's the good news about that, which people will be excited hearing about. When you're a traditional doctor, you know, working in a hospital, hospitalist, et cetera, you're getting your salary or your hourly wage. You typically are not getting many more perks beyond that. I mean, maybe with RBUs, depends on your hospital system. But the really good news about most large UM companies is they do pay you bonuses every quarter. So you get a base salary, a W-2 salary, which may be either hourly or it may just be a regular salary. And then per quarter, you usually get a bonus. It can be anywhere from 5% of your earnings for that quarter. And I've seen it up to 10, 15%, depending on the company. This is based on things like your quality of your reviews, based on your productivity, things like that. It's not based on you know, how many denials did you give? That doesn't matter. It's all just based on kind of the quality of the care that reviews you do, because there's so many internal metrics and checks and balances to make sure that doctors are doing, are being peer reviewed by their peers, right? Making sure they're making the right decisions, right determinations. In terms of compensation, that varies. 
greatly as it does anywhere. A lot of people who come to utilization management, a lot of physicians who come are coming from outpatient jobs. A lot of family physicians come into UM, a lot of hospitalists, a lot of inpatient people come to UM as well. I guess what I'm trying to say is that oftentimes the UM compensation is a little bit higher than you would get as a kind of a routine, you know, outpatient family doctor or a hospitalist. And it's hard for me to give ballpark ranges. It's very difficult to do that. You can go on to all the websites and they'll kind of give you a glimpse. But I would say for a full-time 40-hour a week UM doctor who just started, I've seen anywhere from 165000 for 40 hours a week all the way up to starting at 300000 for a full-time job. So, and it's usually somewhere in the middle, I would say. It's usually in the... I see a lot of the low 200,000 range, mid 200,000 range. And again, this is 40 hours a week, right? No call, no weekends. So whenever, so a lot of times you may get docs who come in and say, oh, I'm taking a pay cut. What I say is, well, you're not going to be working as much, right? You're not taking that into consideration. Also, you're not going to have the stress you have. You're not going to be worried after hours and you're not going to have the liability that you have currently. So it's a lot less stress. And when I'm giving those numbers, that's a base salary. That doesn't take into consideration the quarterly bonuses or annual bonuses at some companies. And also you usually get, almost always, I've actually never heard the opposite. You usually always get a raise every year. How often do you get a raise as a traditional doctor every year? Yeah, no. Never. <laughs> never. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. So when docs come over, I always say, look, talk to your friends in real life who don't work in medicine. Talk to your friends who work for big corporations, who work in HR or who work in the legal department and or work as project managers and ask them how many weekends they work. Ask them if they don't get a raise every year. Doctors are treated very well in the non-clinical world or what I call the non-traditional world because most other people are too. Doctors take a lot of bad treatment in the traditional medical world. Speaking of that, and you addressed it to some degree, but going back to the peer-to-peer, do you deal with a lot of animosity coming from the clinic physicians or the hospitalists or specialists? I mean, how awful is that? (laughs) Yeah, well, that's always everybody's concern. I've done thousands of peer-to-peers in my career, over my 10-year career. And I can fortunately say only about 5% of them are what you describe. I think that the most important thing to understand is when you're doing a peer-to-peer, oftentimes this doctor doesn't really even know who they're talking to. They don't know why they're doing it. Like, all they know is something was denied and somebody told them to call this number and talk about it, right? That's all they know. They may not even know everything you know about what's going on with this patient. It may, maybe it's the hospitalist. Maybe it's the outpatient family doctor who doesn't really know, who doesn't have all the clinical details about what the home health agency is reporting about what's happening in this patient's home. And this is how I train doctors who do peer-to-peers, is for them to understand that you are just trying to help, help the doctor and help the patient. So when I call it a peer-to-peer, the first thing I'm trying to do is make sure I have the right information about this patient. Maybe it's all, maybe it's inaccurate. You have eyes on the patient. I don't. I just want to make sure that what I'm seeing is accurate. And oftentimes it's not. I'd say over half of the time, the doctor says, actually, that's not right. The patient had these symptoms or doesn't have a caregiver at home. 
or whatever. And I say, okay, no problem. I'll make the change. Thank you. We're not here to deny anybody care. We're here to make sure that they're getting what they need. Now, oftentimes people will call in and they'll be frustrated that something isn't covered uh, on a benefit at all. And an example of that, which is a very good example, is things like custodial care and Medicare or Medicare Advantage. They don't cover that. It's just not covered. So even if I agree a patient would benefit from custodial care, there's nothing I can do. Now I can suggest maybe you, you know, see if there's any local resources, if there's any, maybe I can get a case manager to see if they can help or if there's something like that. But I'm just there to help. And I think that after the doctors understand that I'm not there to deny, I'm just there to help and make sure that you're doing evidence-based care. I think they actually most of the time appreciate it because I can often give them a lot more guidance that they're not getting from their social worker or from their case manager. And this doctor calling in is busy. They have a thousand patients they have to see. Now they got to call in and talk to me. They're not going to be happy about that. I fortunately have the time and the bandwidth to be as helpful as I can. So I think that the vast majority of time, the doctors are appreciative. Yes, you're going to get 5% of the time, the doctors who are really upset and who yell at you and call you names. But as I always train people, it has nothing to do with us. They're just taking out their frustrations of their day on you. And you just kind of learn to deal with it. But fortunately, it doesn't happen often. That's good. That's really good to hear. It's also kind of refreshing to hear from the other side of it because I'm coming at it as the ordering physician and my patient didn't get XYZ. Maybe they don't get approved for skilled nursing. But it's kind of good to hear it from the other side that you know, maybe their plan just doesn't pay for that, or we haven't documented what they need. So do you have any tips for the physician on my side? Is there certain things, you know, that we need to make sure are in the chart to try and get what we're ordering? Yeah. I mean, that's a whole can of worms. I could talk about that for hours, (laughs) but you hit a good point though, which is sometimes the doctor can just tell you, oh, if you call for the peer-to-peer, oh, well, yeah, I agree. They need that, but we would need this documentation from you or what have you. And we guide you in that process. We say, look, just fax it to this number or email it to this address. Or sometimes we can even verbally document that you just told us that. We try to be as help. We bend over backwards to help our docs, give the patients the care that they need. But there's other things too that I think are important. And things like the CMS benefit manual, which is not covered in medical school for the most part, for the most part, it's not covered in residency. You know, when I came out of family medicine residency and I had a wonderful residency, you know, we knew about basic things like, okay, the two midnight rule. Okay, I've heard of that. But there's a whole thick manual of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages of things that we have to, that have to be approved before we can even approve a home physical therapy order. Whereas the ordering physician is thinking, okay, this patient just, they just broke their hip. They were just getting out of acute rehab and now they just got out of sniff and now they're going home with physical therapy. Sounds good. Okay. I'll sign off on that. It's fine. Right. But what they don't realize is there's that whole benefit manual describing what is a skilled need? What, what does it mean? Do they really need home physical therapy or they, can they go to outpatient? So I would say really a lot of it has to do if docs want to be really knowledgeable about this stuff, I would say read the CMS benefit manual about, uh, or at least refer to it. You just Google it, CMS chapter seven about home health requests. What does this patient need if I really want to order them a home health aid? What else has to be in the home? Okay, there's got to be another skill in the home. Well, I didn't know that. Okay, I have to order OT. This is stuff that is not taught in most training programs. And 
There's also the other thing would be like the formularies. I mean, a lot of docs don't understand the for- the drug formularies that well. They're just ordering what they think is necessary. Oftentimes, the good news, though, is especially these private commercial insurance companies are more than happy to talk with docs about this stuff. So like at my company, if a doctor calls in and wants to talk to me about anything, we call them proact. We call them actually post-auth peer-to-peers. So if they call in and just want to ask a question, we are more than happy to call them back at the time they want. So we bend over backwards. We don't even put them on holds. We say, yes, just tell me what time you want us to call you back. Okay, have them call me at 3.30 tomorrow, okay? Because we want to help. But yeah, I would so like definitely- you to be assigned to all of my cases, please. Ah, ah. <laughs> well, you're very kind, but you know I'm very good at delivering bad news, I've been told. But we really do bend over backwards. And, and that's probably the most delightful thing I've seen in companies is, look, yes, at the end of the day, these are, comp- these are insurance companies which are owned by shareholders after reporting to shareholders. Yes, everybody's making a profit. Yes. But what the things that I do see behind the scenes is I see these amazing programs, which are patient-centered, which are really out there to ensure that the patients are be- being benefited. Because when the patient's happy and being healthier, it saves everybody money. And that large health insurance companies know that. And believe me, we do not want patients, for instance, an example is you do not want a patient to go home from the hospital if they're not safe at home and they're just going to end up as a bounce back, which is a bad word in the hospitalization world, as everybody knows. No, we want them to be in the appropriate level of care. We may have more questions about it because oftentimes people are sent to the inappropriate level of care. And we just need to make sure that it's appropriate, but we want to make sure that they're appropriate and that they're going to be safe and they're going to get better and they're not going to go back to the hospital. But unfortunately, I recognize more than anybody that we make people have, unfortunately, have to go through a lot of hoops sometimes for those approvals. Well, let's, I guess, one more time, talk about the Facebook group and then let's Tell people how they can get in touch with you if they're looking for a coach and they're maybe wanting to transition or at least look into some type of other type of career. Absolutely. So again, if you're interested in any of this, please join us on our Remote Careers Physician Group. It's called Remote Careers for Physicians. All you have to do is go into the group search on Facebook and type in under private groups, Remote Careers for Physicians, and you answer a few questions about kind of doctor you are and some other questions about your license or sure and all of that, just so we can make sure that you're a physician because we want to make sure they're only doctors. We don't accept PAs, NPs, dentists, anybody else. And you will be admitted. It's free and you get to access to our network. Of course, do private coaching. If you want private coaching at drjonathan.com, I'm always happy to do that. But the other thing I would just encourage people is just join. Even if you have one iota of interest just join. The group is 90% doctors who have no other experience, who are just regular routine run-of-the-mill outpatient or inpatient docs, no other experience, are just interested to see if there's other places for them to go. And I can say very confidently that there are lots of UM jobs. There are lots of pharma jobs as well. You may hear about you know, medical science liaison jobs or medical affairs jobs. These are all very, very good paying, high paying careers that you can get into even with no experience in pharma, you just need a little bit of help doing it. And there are coaches who can help you get, you know, maybe take one of the courses for some of the pharma companies or to really formulate your CV 
so that you can actually land an interview. They teach you how to network. All these things are very important. Networking on LinkedIn, networking at events, knowing how to apply. And then I think if you guys don't remember anything else who's listening, I want you to remember that you can get these jobs, but you do need to be persistent. Doctors are not used to being rejected, right? If I'm a family doctor and I want a job tomorrow, I can probably get one, right? In in another clinic. You have people calling you up all day, every day. Recruiters want you for another clinical job. Doctors are not used to needing to actually work very hard on this and understand that you're going to get a lot of rejections and it's going to take months. As I said, it usually takes, I've seen it as soon as three months. It can take as long as 18 months. It certainly took me 18 months and lots of rejections, lots of rejections. And you will get those. And that is just to be expected. Do not let it frustrate you. I always tell everybody, you should celebrate every rejection because it means you're one step closer to an acceptance. So in a lot of times people come to me and say, oh, I want this job, but I've been rejected five times or I've been ghosted. That happens a lot too in the industry. Been ghosted or rejected five, 10 times. I always tell them, well, that just means you haven't applied enough and you haven't been rejected enough, right? Because it often takes 20, 30, 40, 50, sometimes over a hundred times, even more than that. A lot of it depends on the market, depends on what the openings are. There's all kinds of things we teach you. Sometimes companies have jobs posted that aren't really active anymore. They have jobs posted who they already have another candidate for, but are just have to keep it open because HR is making them. There's all sorts of reasons. But if you are dedicated to it, reach out for help in the remote careers group. One of the wonderful things about this job is every single doctor in my field, and I, I run a team of 20 utilization management doctors, every single one of us will bend, will bend over backwards to help our colleagues get into one of these careers. So we're always happy to help. So if you have a peer-to-peer, just ask the doctor you're doing the peer-to-peer with. They'll be happy to tell you about their job. And they'll probably say, hey, email me your CV. I'd be happy to give you some pointers. Don't feel stuck or frozen, or you're never going to be happy if you're burnt out or if you like your job, but are just interested in seeing what else is out there. Please do join us in remote careers and we'll be happy to welcome you. I have one kind of tangential question. Sure. We have so many people that went through medical school that can't get into residency programs in this country. And I know you said for utilization management, they have to be board certified, but for some of the other careers, would this be a good place to look for those people that haven't been able to get into residency programs to find a different type of non-clinical career? Absolutely. A lot of the pharma jobs don't even require a license. Some of them do, but I would say a a lot of them don't. They just require an MD or a DO degree or an MBBS degree or its equivalent. So yes, I have many colleagues who work in pharma who didn't do a residency. Also, there's other gigs. There's medical writing that some people do. There's consulting. There's all sorts of things that they can do if they didn't get into a residency. But the other thing I want to say is that sometimes what I do help people with is help them consider other residencies that they may not have considered. If they really do want to do a residency, maybe they didn't consider wound or preventive medicine or occupational health, all these other kind of more, a little bit less common ways to get board certified. Sometimes I do encourage people to seek that out. Other thing I have a lot is people who come and say, well, I'm not board certified anymore. So there's a lot of ways to get board certified. If you lost your certification, there's different boards nowadays that some that employers do accept. So definitely whatever situation you're in, 
please come and post about it and somebody will help you. All of us will help, of course, but you will get guidance. And don't think, oh, I'm stuck in this one path. You can usually get out of one path and open up a lot more opportunities. It'll take effort and it'll take time and it'll take a lot of dedication, but you can. I love it. I think your cup is half full and I love that. Absolutely. <laughs> You're just always so positive and encouraging. Always. I love that. You got to be. And I always tell docs, look, we're used to dealing with a lot of sad things. We're used to dealing with a lot of bad news. We're used to dealing with a lot of stress, anxiety, sleeplessness, fatigue, not being able to exercise, not being able to eat healthy. We're used to dealing with a lot of that. But in this job, you're going to have time to sleep. You're going to have time to eat lunch. You're going to have time to exercise. And it's going to make you a happier person. It just will. It'll improve your personal life, your family life, your work life, your hobbies, your financial life. It will improve everything about you. So I strongly encourage people to consider alternative careers. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Again, if you want to reach out to Dr. Vitali, you can go to Dr. Jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N.com and learn more about his coaching service or Remote Careers for Physicians on Facebook. So, And thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's a lot of fun. Thank you. Uh And I hope you'll all tune in again next week for Grand Rounds.